0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: know, we get to talk to some really interesting people on this show, people who have incredibly fascinating jobs. And I always wonder, how do people end up in those positions? Like, how does one become a book detective. Well, our next guest is exactly that. And she has investigated historic books to find out more about them and the time they came from, quite famously, actually. Vanessa Berganza is the book detective and a doctoral candidate in Renaissance Literature at Harvard University and joins us now. Vanessa, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. How did you get this job, Vanessa? Because that sounds pretty darn good.
2: I I tend to think that the job found me, actually. So I I knew from the time I was an undergraduate student that I loved literature. And in particular, I loved the secrets that old books could hide. Um, So I knew right away that I wanted to pursue my PhD. uh, And then I just naturally sort of put myself into places where discovery seemed to find me. So um, four years ago, I was at a book fair, and I ran into a book turned a corner and saw a book that happened to belong to the first female English novelist. And then once you notice one thing, you start to notice another. And so more and more the, the job finds you. And the more you, you learn, uh, the more there is to notice and the more things seem to find you. So I think, I think the, the, the job chose me in any way. <laughs>
1: well, what do you mean by the secrets that old books can hide?
2: Mm. It's, uh, so as, as a kid, I was very into Sherlock Holmes. I loved this idea um, that you could discern you could you could deduce so many different things from looking at seemingly insignificant details, the mud on someone's shoe or how many stairs there were in a house, and you can do very much the same thing with books. Uh, so so this book, for example, the the book that um, that we'll be talking about today, um, you can actually tell from, say the decorations on a binding, who bound it, who owned it, um, what they were thinking when they chose certain decorations which hands it passed through based on whose handwriting is inside, um, and even how it was made based on watermarks on paper. You can even tell where things like paper came from. So all of that pieced together becomes a, can become a real mosaic, and beca- it can become uh, a real window not only into the object, but actually into someone's minds and thoughts from as far as 500 years ago.
1: Yeah, this one I was going to ask you about is one of your most famous cases. It involves a book called The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. Tell us about this.
2: Yeah, so this is a book that's very little known today, but it's one of the first uh, novels in English. Um, It was written in the 1570s. and It's got a very sweet story behind it. It was written by a a man named Philip Sidney, who was a courtier at the court of Elizabeth I. And he had a kid sister, and he loved to tell her stories. And one day she said, will you write them down? And the result was the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. His sister, Mary Sidney, was the Countess of Pembroke. Um, but Philip Sidney, he died. He had written um, one complete version of this novel, and then he'd begun to expand upon it, and he died before he could finish it. Um, so Mary Sidney found herself in a, in a really tragic position when her brother died, that um, she had this pile of unfinished manuscripts, the, the Arcadia among them, uh, this book that was written for her. So uh, it's got this very poignant uh, story behind it, uh, even though not many people know about
1: it today. That is, okay, so interesting. How did you come across this?
2: Um, so I knew about the Arcadia because, because I study Renaissance literature. So as a PhD student, uh, i I've, I've, I've actually from undergrad. I've always specialized in uh, English Renaissance literature for bachelor's, master's, and now PhD so it's a, it's a text that you, it's inevitable. You're going to come across it if you, if you specialize in the period. Um, but this copy of it, actually, I, I literally spotted it through the rungs of a ladder, this copy that, um, that uh, uh, claimed to be Mary Sidney's personal copy of her brother's novel.
1: And it was, good, it was considered a forgery?
2: It was considered a forgery. So, so I'd been a, a PhD student for a, about a month. Uh, I hadn't been at Harvard very long, and of course, one of the first things that I did was to get myself a job at the Rare Books Library. (laughs) And um, the library at at Harvard has this uh, another tragic and interesting story uh, behind it. Uh, The main library is named for Harry Widener, a young man who, uh, a Harvard student, who died on the Titanic, but he loved to collect rare books. And so when he died, his mother donated the. Uh, the quite a lot of money to to build what's still the main library at Harvard in his honor. And at the center of this library, there's this beautiful oak paneled room with um, with Widener's personal book collection in it. And those, of course, are rare books. Then you can't check them out, so um, so they fall to the rare books library. So one day I was in that room, helping the librarian to to pull books that people had requested um, uh, to to view in a in a reading room, and she was. She went up the, the, the ladder to pull something from the top shelf, and I'm holding the ladder in place. And I just look between the rungs of the ladder at the shelf in front of me, and I see this scarlet um, leather case book, uh, 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 case with a book inside of it um, that says, The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, The Countess of Pembroke's Own Copy. And I jumped, and I said, That, that exists? It's, it's the kind of thing
1: that you don't expect to just run into. Right. <laughs> um, so I was floored. And you were convinced that this was authentic i was so so
2: my 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 balloon didn 't stay aloft for very long <laughs> I, uh, I I ran back to the you know to my my librarian uh, friends, my colleagues at the library, uh, the Houghton Library at Harvard, uh, which is a rare book repository, and I said, guess what I saw on the shelf and uh pretty soon they you know they told me well actually that's that's reported to be it 's a famous forgery and um, and uh, and, uh, uh back in the 1940s when when Harvard set up its first rare books library, the first librarian uh, took one look at this book and said, well, the binding is not original. The binding is actually French. This is an English book. And the binding was put on a lot later. So what you have is a 17th century book inside and a roughly contemporary binding, contemporary with the book inside, but it was put on at some much later date to make it look like it was Mary Sidney's personal copy. And I, now bear in mind, I hadn't seen the book because the book is in this fantastic leather case and that's how it's shelved. So I didn't really call it up with any agenda in mind. I didn't know what I was gonna find, but something in me was just curious to see what this forgery looked like. And so I, I called it up and uh, looked at the at the bindings. I was new to, to binding analysis at the time. Um, but inside was this signature by uh, supposedly by uh, this man Robert Carr, the first Earl of Ancram, who's a relative of Mary Sidney's by marriage, and I looked at the handwriting, and I know quite a lot about early modern handwriting, and I said, uh, I said, well, this actually looks like an early 17th century hand, and very often forgeries, later forgeries of Renaissance handwriting, tend to be shaky or inconsistent. It's sort of based on what people from later periods notice about the handwriting of right. the time, and they don't notice everything. Um, and, uh, and and this looked authentic. And, and Ankram, luckily for me, was a member of parliament. So he's left quite a paper trail that not many people care about. Um, and so it it, uh, it didn't take very long for me to pull up uh, on the rare document market receipts and things that he had signed. And they all matched the signature. And, and that was when I knew there was something else going on here.
1: But Vanessa, it's not easy to convince people in the academic world to change their minds about something that they they, they remained, like they were like, nope, this is it, <laughs> right? This is like done. How did you do that? How mm-hmm. did you convince them that, no, no, you're wrong?
2: Well, I think that that the, the signature was was a real, the fact that it was a dead ringer. I mean, handwriting is is much more telltale and much more um, uh much easier to make a case for than something like a book binding uh in which you're analyzing the type of leather the grain of the leather all of which are very qualitative they're they're, they're uh part of the case for this book but they're more qualitative than a signature which is like a thumbprint um, and so i i i started by by retracing the librarian's steps from 80 years ago um and I was able to reproduce his logic, and I think this is what convinced people because he had looked at the, it's interestingly sort of the, 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 this classic case of judging a book by its cover. He looked at the cover and said, correctly actually, this is not the original binding. But his next, his conclusion from that was the whole book is a fake. And so he had looked at the signature inside, and he had said, well, I've seen signatures of, of the Earl of Ancrum, uh, and they don't match this one. Now, as it turned out, he had gone to a very, what's still a very famous book sale, rare book sale back in 1932. Uh, the same family, the Ancrum family, uh, sold off their fantastic collection of books. And in some of those books were another Ancrum signature. Now, by that point, the uh, the Harvard librarian, whose name was Bill Jackson, he he saw what he expected to see when he saw those signatures in these books for sale. He saw a signature that didn't match Um, But as it turned out, if you go back into the catalog for that sale, they're they're signatures by a much later Earl of Ankrum. The hand is a 19th or 20th century hand. Um, And early modern handwriting, Renaissance handwriting, is very distinctive. Many of its letter forms are quite different from the handwriting that, that we know that's, that right. really begins in the 19th century uh, onwards. So, um, so he, he literally judged a book by its cover. So I, I think that what, <laughs> what was persuasive about my case was, number one, the handwriting did match, and I could show samples of, of Robert Carr's handwriting that, that this was the signature in the book. And number two, I could show why the other conclusion had been wrong and reproduce exactly what happened. So I think that that was that put the lid on it for people.
1: You know, Vanessa, you've just very accurately explained why your job is so fascinating, uh, why you're so lucky to do this work. It was amazing. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun on this holiday Monday. Good morning, Vaughn.
3: Good morning, Simi, and congratulations to BC Ferries. So far, so good, eh?
1: I feel like every time we say that, we have to knock wood. Like, I know. Day's not uh, over. It's a long
3: weekend. it, I suppose. I know. But, uh, but you're right. I've whacked them enough uh, recently, I think. Uh, gonna, and I know, uh, Nicholas Jimenez, you got them on a little later. And so, uh, so far, so good. Boss, and congratulations.
1: True. But they did a lot of things differently this weekend that oh, I yeah. wish they had done earlier, right?
3: Yep, No, but, you know, he's just into his sixth month as CEO. So you go, all right, uh, here's your chance to turn things around. They did fire the old CEO a year ago, but it took him a while to get Jimenez in place. Uh, I had a little chat with him while he was uh, making himself available to the news media last Wednesday. And one of the things we talked about is the future of the ferry service, particularly whether we're going to see a shift to more people walking on and fewer people driving on. And we did see that in the data on Friday. So ferries is doing much better than it did in the past, getting us up-to-date numbers on what's actually happening in the fleet. And the numbers that jumped out are about 1,400 fewer vehicles on the ferries on Friday compared to the Friday of the BC day-long weekend last year but 1,400 more passengers. So some of those are people that are walking on, leaving their cars behind. Some of them may be people that are doubling up. Uh, they know friends are going to Vancouver or to the island, and they say, hey, can you give me a lift so I don't have to park my car? So uh, in any event, it was one day, it may be not a trend, but I think it's going to be interesting to hear what Jimenez says about that.
1: If that's the case, though, then they kind of have to revamp the
3: terminals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's quite open about this. As a new CEO, I think he is open to long-term thinking about changes on the ferries. And one of the things he talked about last week is, yeah, the ferry service was invented uh, by uh, the old social credit government in the 1960s to carry vehicles back and forth. And they put the terminals, the main ones, at the end of highways, and those locations, uh, Horseshoe Bay, uh, Tawasson in particular on the mainland, but Swartz Bay and Departure Bay on the island, and Juke Point, aren't necessarily the friendliest places for people who just want to walk on. The parking lots are crowded, the waiting rooms are tiny, the walks from where you buy your tickets to get to the ferry are worthy of an airport. And he said, yeah, we have to look at that future and decide Are we going to have different kinds of terminals? Uh, Are we going to have, think about parking lots and transit links? And I think an open question, should the ferries be thinking of what that service that's just started in Nanaimo, which is passenger only ferry service? And if you're going to do that, do you put the terminals somewhere closer to public transit?
1: That one actually really intrigues me, and I'm going to be very curious to see how it works, because it it does sound very handy, right, to go downtown Vancouver to downtown Nanaimo.
3: Yeah, and, you know, it it does, uh, especially, Simi, because of the configuration of Georgia Strait and the island. Nanaimo to downtown Vancouver is a relatively short run. Downtown Vancouver to Victoria, I mentioned a while ago, it was a passenger service that did that. It's a long run and you do go through some pretty rough water on the way. So that one may not make a lot of sense. And an idea that knocked around years ago was a ferry service from roughly where the airport is, Sea Island, to... Gabriola Island on Vancouver, off Vancouver Island. It's a very short crossing and it might make sense as a passenger only ferry service if uh, that's what ferries are doing. Jimenez told me that he's hoping for a preliminary report on all this back by next June before they go out and commission uh, the next generation of new ferries for the coast.
1: Interesting. Okay, so we will talk more about ferries coming up later this morning, but we are going to talk about parents and report cards. I know it's almost time for back to school, but there's going to be a big change. Vaughn's going to tell us all about it.
3: It didn't get a lot of attention when the government announced it in June, but there is a major change coming in this school year, so the year starting in September, on uh, grading students. The government announced they're phasing out letter grades for grades up to grade 9, so including grade 9, letter grades only now in future for 10, 11, and 12. And uh, the new system is called Proficiency Rating, And I have to say, my first look at it, it's confusing. But, you know, the thing uh, from experience as a parent, you really only notice changes in the school system, not when there's a press release, although I am paid to keep track of that, but when your child comes home with, God, where did this come from? And I think (laughs) that's what we're looking at for the school year, because Uh, This is going to be controversial. It's already controversial based on the people who've been surveyed. And I think the first reaction of many parents will be, what the heck does this mean? It is incredibly confusing.
1: Okay. And so So, to go back historically to look at this too, the elimination of letter grades, BC has toyed with this on and off for 30 plus years.
3: Yeah, they have. And it's interesting, you know, the new Democrats, when they got elected in 1991 into government, Mike Harcourt was the premier, they inherited a plan that had been implemented by the previous social credit government to phase out letter grades and replace them with what was called anecdotal reporting. And as parents began to digest what that actually meant, there was a big backlash. Now, the New Democrats, it wasn't their idea, and they didn't have to defend it. Instead, what happened was Mike Harcourt announced that the system brought in by the Socrates had failed. He fired his education minister right out of cabinet, appointed a new education minister, and that minister... Um, went back to letter grades. He just stared the system back. That happened in 1994. And the system the New Democrats put in in 1994 for grading, in many respects, is still the system that is in place now 30 years ago. But that is being thrown overboard now by another NDP government. And yeah, when you say everything no should be new again, uh, there was a backlash last time The New Democrats seem awfully smug that it's not going to happen this time, but there's a clue that there might be a backlash. The government actually, Simi, went out and asked parents and teachers and students what they thought of the switch from letter grades to proficiency ratings, and almost 70% said they didn't like it. That was in a survey in the fall of uh, two years ago. Students didn't like it. Parents didn't like it. (laughs) Teachers didn't like it. And they thought, you know, it was vague and confusing and difficult to explain. And in spite of that, early feedback, you know, and this government often cites survey evidence to justify what it's doing. In this case, they chose to ignore the survey. They say, well, those people didn't understand the system. Okay, well, you want to tell the public it doesn't understand the change and we're going to do it anyway. That, to me, is not necessarily a recipe for building public support, but it's happening in September. So, uh, you know, you won't know it until you see it on the report cards. And I guess the report cards are the ones that will arrive with the new proficiency ratings. Uh, What, you get reports uh, midterm in the fall or do you get them just in December? I forget.
1: (laughs) You tend to get it midterm from what I remember as yeah. well, and then at the end of end of that term yeah. too, before the holidays. so what okay, do they so, say like what do they
3: actually do <laughs> yeah okay so and and you know bear with me uh, the the listener out there you, you've got somebody in school here's what you can expect when you get the new proficiency rating on the report card uh, your child uh, your student is going to be rated as emerging developing, proficient, or my favorite, extending. And the education ministry has provided a translation uh, for dumb people like me about what those words actually mean. So if your student is rating as, rated as emerging, it means they have an initial understanding of the subject. Part, uh, dis- developing means they have a partial understanding of the subject. Proficient means they have a complete understanding of the subject. And extending means they have a sophisticated understanding of the subject. Now, if that sounds vague and arbitrary and confusing, you're not alone. However, uh, the government is doing it anyway. And frankly, I have to say at this point, they don't much care what you think because they ignored the survey where 70% of those Uh, surveyed, parents, teachers, and students said they didn't like it. They're going ahead with it anyway.
1: I have so many questions about whether or not, like, is that a disservice to kids if they do go on to post-secondary education? And I understand that not everybody does. But if they do, isn't that going to be a hard hit reality for them when they get there and all of a sudden there's letter grades and percentages again?
3: You know, you have raised... Uh, the most interesting feedback I've got since I wrote about this in the Sun on Saturday is the issue you raised, and the issue is twofold. They're keeping letter grades for grade 10, 11, and 12. I've heard from teachers who say, if you've gone through the school system being rated extended or whatever, proficient or developing, and you suddenly start getting A's and B's and C pluses again, it's going to be a shock because you and your parents are- 100% going to know what it means. But the other thing you raise, Simi, is very interesting. What will this do to transcripts? In order to go on to post-secondary education, you have to produce transcripts. Are universities in Canada and in the United States going to recognize those ratings up to grade nine? If they ask to see your grade nine transcript, are they going to go, what the hell does extended mean? you know, it, what What does that mean? So I think you're right. They, I think they've created a problem for students in the transition when you start getting letter grades again. But I think you may have also created a problem for students that are hoping to go on to higher education who may not be prepared and may not have a transcript that is going to be fully accepted by another school. Because I know some schools they want to know how you were doing in grade nine as well.
1: Yeah, they do. They look at everything. It's so competitive to get into post-secondary. They do look at so many things now. And also for teachers, like for high school teachers, yeah. that's pretty challenging. So are you telling grade teachers who teach grade 12 subjects that you have to do both? You know,
3: like that's, uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, you're telling the teachers in grade who teach grade 10 uh, that – you know uh you're going to have to talk to the grade 9 teacher to find out what the heck all these proficiency ratings mean because you're going to have to start handing out A's and B's and C's again and uh, i think that transition is going to be difficult i you know teachers it's interesting the government claims it has the support of the teachers union with this transition but individual teachers didn't like it those who were surveyed didn't like it 77% of the teachers didn't like it for a number of reasons Uh, you know, whatever one thinks of the teacher's union, individual teachers have a pretty good sense of a couple of things. One is how students react to the rating system. And second of all, how parents react. And a parent who went through a school system, child getting letter grades, or went through themselves getting letter grades, are going to go, okay, well, an A puts you in the same ballpark and a C plus does too. However you're going to have to learn a whole new understanding like switching from fahrenheit to centigrade to what this yeah. new system means and it is arbitrary i mean just individual teachers are i'm sure going to go well is this um hmm is this uh, developing or is this proficient or is this extending or is this emerging and one of the most important things the school system does is tell parents how your children are doing exactly. in the school system. That's one of the reasons Mike Harcourt and his education minister abandoned this in the 1990s. Abandoned it 30 years ago was because Harcourt said, we're not telling parents how their children are doing in the school yeah. system anymore with these anecdotal reports. this I have a feeling we're going to talk more about this over the next few months yeah. of on. So listen, thank
1: you very much yeah. for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. In the past week, there's been a lot of talk about divorce, in particular divorce and politics. It's not every day that Canada makes headlines all over the world, but this story about the Prime Minister uh, and Sophie Gregoire-Trudeau separating certainly did do that, made headlines everywhere, but not as much here in Canada. I think Canadians had a very different attitude towards that. We feel it's quite private. Uh, it's It's a family issue, and we don't really, I think, want to interfere or discuss that. It also shows you how much, though, attitudes have changed towards political situations involving divorce. We're going to talk more about that, actually. Dr. Rod Phillips is with us now, a professor of history and editor of the Journal of Family History at Carleton University. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh,
4: you're very welcome.
1: I guess this has been a fascinating week for you to kind of see what the public attitude has been like.
4: It has been. It has been actually quite interesting because I'm just uh, I'm just reworking a book that I wrote in the 1980s on, uh, on the history of divorce and uh, trying to track changes in attitudes and changes in divorce, actually, over that period. So um, this has been quite interesting.
1: Yeah, things have really changed. I feel like this for a lot of Canadians, they just they thought, you know what? nope that's a private matter. And, and we don't want to deal with that. Is that a sense that you got? I
4: think that is uh yeah, but I was a bit sort of surprised by how blase people were about it. I thought there'd be a little bit of you know prurient interest, you know what what's going on, what's the backstory um has someone be cheating on somebody you know that that kind of thing, but there's really been nope. nothing of that, and I think people are prepared to sort of take it at face value and unless you know, other other information comes to light.
1: Yeah, I got to tell you, like, even us talking about it right now makes me a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> because it is not something that I think I, I wanted to discuss or, you know, you want to leave it to the family there. So let's talk about the historical aspect of this because this certainly was not always the case. There was a time, Dr. Phillips, where this would have been a big no-no.
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and not that long ago, quite frankly. I think, you know, I think you can go back to, certainly to the 50s, uh, when, you know, divorce was thought to be pretty shameful. People were, didn't, didn't want to acknowledge that they had a divorce in the family. Um, you know, divorced, divorced people sometimes couldn't get credit, couldn't get loans because they were thought to be unstable uh, and, and immoral. So that's, you know, that's, that's 70 years ago. It's not, it's not that long. But, but things began to change So sort of in the 60s and 70s with liberalization, new divorce laws just everywhere in the Western world. And... Um, you know, it, t- it took sort of fault out of divorce. So you didn't have to prove adultery or violence or desertion and people could simply, you know, get divorced after, you know, a period of, uh, of living apart. And that's, first of all, the, the number of divorces went up quite dramatically and it made divorce more common. People met divorced people. They had divorced people in their families and divorced people in their circle of friends and it just became normalized, I would say, in the sort of the, the 90s and around the early, early uh, 2000s. And that's what, that's what we're seeing now. And, it, it, you know, it may have gone further in, in Canada than, say, in the United States, I think. But you can also see it in, um, in, in Britain where, you know, Boris Johnson was uh, divorced. I don't know how many times he's been divorced, two or three times. And, you know, he was elected uh, uh, prime minister. I mean, this dumped more recently, but not, not because of that. And uh, and and the fact that you know there's now a king and a queen consort on the throne, the queen and king of England uh, and and of of Canada for that matter, who are both divorced.
1: And it maybe just comes with more personal experience, as you pointed out, that you know a hundred years ago it might have been a bit more rare, fifty years ago it might have been a bit more rare, but nowadays it's not.
4: No, it's not, and uh, and I think people have sort of realize that th- these things happen. I mean, sometimes there are bad stories that go with divorce, you know, there's violence, um, you know, uh, coercion, you know, all, ki- all kinds of things that can, that can uh, go with divorce. But, you know, on many occasions, people simply grow apart, you know, the, the marriage runs its course. And uh, I think people are kind of familiar with this in their, in their own families, their own relationships.
1: Does it depend, do you think, on which country it is? Like, I had to wonder whether or not this would be the case if it happened in the United States.
4: Well, that's a good question. And uh, my thinking is that probably a divorced, a divorced person could not be elected, say, to, uh, to the presidency of the United States. Neither could an atheist, for that matter. Because, um, I mean, for all that we think of the Americans as being quite liberal, they're very conservative in religious terms and they're very conservative in, in, in moral terms as well. Um, so I think I think Canadians are, are likely to be more liberal, and I think I think most Americans would think that as well, because they they kind of look at uh, look at Canadians as being some somewhat uh, too liberal. I think in many in many respects.
1: What about other countries? Like, in, would this be a big deal in Europe?
4: I don't think so. I think Europeans are pretty uh, pretty liberal on the whole, and the, I mean the, the French president uh, François Hollande actually divorced while he was uh, while he was president. Um, and then you have Johnson in uh, in, in the United Kingdom. So, I, I, no, I, I think that in much of Western Europe anyway, I, I can't speak for the Central East and, and Eastern Europe. I think in most, most of um, uh, Western Europe, I mean, Berlusconi in Italy was divorced. Um, I think there's a greater tolerance of, uh, of um, you know, different kinds of marriage relationships, than in uh, many other parts of the world.
1: Yeah, so is there more of a separation, do you think, then, of private life, personal life, or Canadians just not caring? We don't want to know about the personal life situation versus what they see in the United States?
4: Well, you know, I think people are always kind of interested. They sort of, you know, we'd like to know the story, but, but I don't think anyone's going to uh, obsess about it. And I, and I don't think it's really going to have any political consequences. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see that happening. It didn't happen with, uh, with Pierre Trudeau. Um, and that was some time ago. And I, I can't see any uh, potential political downside to uh, to the separation as far as uh, Justin Trudeau is concerned.
1: Well, it certainly gives us a lot to study, that's for sure. Uh, Dr. Phillips, thanks for your time.
4: Oh, you're very welcome.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. We've talked a lot about the port strike, the labor dispute over the last month or so because there was agreements and then there weren't agreements and then they reached another tentative agreement, it was rejected by the membership. Well, now the latest tentative agreement has been accepted and voted on by the membership and it looks like it's good, it's coming to an end, everything is going to get back to normal there. But there was a lot of confusion, Right. Uh, Lots of calls for government to get involved, just businesses that were confused and had backups. And so how do we make sure something like this doesn't happen again? Do we need to dig a little deeper into how we got to this point? And there's a question about whether or not the Canadian Labor Code should actually be amended so we could have some kind of inquiry into strikes to find out what went wrong and, and what happened there. Could they have been avoided? Well, joining us now is Dr. Peter Hall, Professor of Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Morning, Simi. Uh,
1: so how, why would we do this? Why would we need to examine this labor dispute more closely, do you think?
5: Um, look, it seems as though there were some underlying issues um, around um, probably the prospect of uh, automation. Um, and we heard quite a bit about contracting out, um, which is really the sort of flip side of automation. It's, it's all the technical work that goes with the changes in uh, terminal operations and those are issues that are uncertain and still evolving and changing and uh, um, there's just a lot of uncertainty about what's coming and that's difficult to sort out of the bargaining table without uh, without a sort of clearer picture and everybody starting to get a common understanding of what's coming
1: but then, why why dig so deep into this particular labor dispute? There's lots of companies and employees that deal with automation.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, sure, there 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 are lots of companies that uh, face automation. A lot of a lot of sectors, uh, yours and mine are included, and yeah. so so you know two things the, the the first thing is that um uh something like a port is part of a sort of a continuous um flow and any disruption to continuous flow is very is very um problematic and so keeping keeping things going is important and um and and worth worth trying to do that's the first thing the second thing is there's there is the kind of a history in this sector of um Employers implementing new technologies. We've seen containerization over the last 50 years, just a massive set of changes on and on and on in the industry. And uh, the kind of bargain they've made is that they'll they'll have very uh, good working conditions in exchange for being able to implement technologies. And That uh, model has worked up until now, and I think there are reasons to think that with uh, automation, it might might no longer and there might need to be a need to, you know, sort of think about um, some of the changes um, that that accompany that automation. And unlike other industries, longshoremen have struck a bargain where they have benefited from technical change, and they're not going to give up on that very quickly or easily.
1: So do we need to have an inquiry into that or do we need to have a better process set up for how negotiations happen?
5: Um, I mean, the, 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 the process was about as good as it gets. You know, the, um, the parties were given a lot of time to talk things through. They were given um, uh, support from the federal mediator. Um, at different moments, the federal government stepped in and said, okay, would you, would you consider this as a deal? So the process worked, um, you know, we've we we do not we no longer have a strike. We have a deal. The party yeah, everyone's back at work. So it worked as well as it can. But I, I would fear that uh, four years from now, we're going to be back in the same position. If we don't um, take this opportunity to spend a bit of time um, examining the issue and uh, really understanding what uh, what kind of changes need to be made.
1: And how do you envision that process?
5: So the, so the 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 Labor Code um, creates a mechanism of an Industrial Inquiry Commission. That would be one way to do it, um, where you have uh, some sort of independent, uh, most often a judge or a lawyer, um, uh, heading up a commission. It could be a panel. They um, have the opportunity to hear from the parties. They have the opportunity to look at the data, and they can come up with recommendations. Nothing's going to change in the law unless those recommendations then go to Parliament and uh, work their way up through that process um, uh, but uh, sometimes the um, the Commission can also put proposals on the table that uh, that uh, then um, then the parties can implement in the in the next contract if they agree um, on them and so it's just a it's just a mechanism to to really look deeply at an issue
1: Have we done this before have we used this before?
5: oh yeah 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 so so previously um, uh, back in the 1980s there was uh, a lot of concern about cargo being diverted to Seattle and Tacoma and that was because of a provision in the collective agreement uh, around um, where those cargo where those containers would be emptied and um, and filled so exactly another example of a new technology um, changing the way things were done and there was a lot of conflict around that and eventually they had a commission and the Commission said Um, basically let's have a deal where um, for every additional container some money is put in the pension fund for the longshoremen that was one one type of resolution there was a similar um, uh, conflict uh, in in, into the early 1990s and there was a commission that said um, uh, we're not going to take away the right to strike but we are going to um, put in some protections so that um, the cargo that's most perishable doesn't doesn't uh, get affected. And uh, you know the the ports of the port has had um, twenty years almost now of of very strong growth, interrupted really only by um, by trucker disputes. And uh, so I just I just think it might be time to consider a mechanism like that um, to to look at these these deeper issues.
1: It's interesting. All right. Well, Dr. Hall, thanks for your time. Oh,
5: you're welcome. Have a good day, Simi.
1: You too. That's Dr. Peter Hall, professor of urban studies at Simon Fraser University, says we shouldn't just all kind of walk away and be like, oh, good, the port strike is over, believes that we should spend some time digging into it. Why did it happen? Can we prevent this from happening in the future? What is the mechanism for that too? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the food scene around here is about to get a shakeup. You obviously know who Gordon Ramsay is. Even if you're not a big foodie, you maybe love reality TV, so you've probably watched one of his many reality TV shows, including Hell's Kitchen, which is so popular. But you know what? He made his living in the beginning as a renowned chef. Numerous Michelin stars. But of course, now he's equally known for his fiery personality, along with his excellence in the kitchen. He's got something like 58 restaurants around the world and until now had not broken into, you know, Metro Vancouver, Canada in a big way. So there was an announcement last week that Gordon Ramsay is going to be partnering with Great Canadian Entertainment. They're going to open two restaurants right here in Metro Vancouver. Sounds exciting, right? Well, our producer Bianca Rego had the chance to talk to Gavin Whiteley, who's the chief marketing officer for Great Canadian Entertainment, to find out what we can expect from these two new restaurants and how this partnership came to be.
6: We are so excited about your partnership with Gordon Ramsay. Um, can you explain how Great Canadian Entertainment ended up partnering with Gordon Ramsay? I think
7: we recognize that the Canadian market has been an opportunity for for Chef Ramsay to expand, and his team was certainly interested in coming to Canada. Had led to discussions over, you know, well over a year to to get us to this point. So it's been a a very long conversation, but we want to do it right, and uh, you know, Gordon's brands and and his team and his customers are certainly worth it and now that we are uh, months away from bringing Gord Ramsay burger to Hard Rock Casino Vancouver by by the end of the year and then Gord Ramsay steak to River Rock Casino Resort uh next year this is this is not like a new recent development so this announcement is long awaited uh, we've been you know biting our tongues to it's to not standing too early <laughs> but um we are certainly excited for the opportunity to bring even more brands to our casino and resorts in Canada. But we are, we are thrilled to finally uh, let the cat out of the bag, so to speak.
6: Yeah, I can't wait to try the Wellington. I've always mm. wanted to try the Wellington.
7: Have you not tried the, the Beef Wellington? Yeah, it's obviously his signature. That and the sticky toffee pudding Ooh. for dessert are like his two, his two sort of trademark uh, dishes at, at most of his, uh, his brands.
6: Will those be available at both of the locations?
7: Uh, I well certainly at Gordon Ramsay Steak. Uh, not everyone, not every location is certainly identical. Um, but you know, th- thinking of Gordon Ramsay Burger during the years that that has been opened at a casino in Las Vegas, every time I walked by the line for that was uh, around <laughs> the block. It was very popular with all sorts of guests. Obviously, Gordon, very popular figure, a very wonderful figure too. I have to say, in person, he is the most amazing, lovely human, very generous with his time. I think it's part of why he has such broad appeal, not just his food, but his his personality, well deserved for sure. And Gordon Emceiver is just so accessible. It's like the food is obviously very familiar. You know what everything is, but the his approach to it is unique, it's it's savory, it's it's uh it's exciting. And just being accessible to so many people, I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, so, I'm, I imagine there'll be lines around the block as well uh, <laughs> at Hard Rock Casino Vancouver when that opens up this year.
6: I will go wherever the sticky toffee pudding is. Toffee pudding, yeah. <laughs> um, so through this partnership, um, it's quite groundbreaking for Canada. How it is this is. going to influence Canada's culinary scene and specifically British Columbia considering the first two restaurants are opening up here?
7: I, I think it it is going to be very transformational. You know, Gordon Ramsay is the uh, original celebrity chef and really paved the way for many others to follow. I think it's rightful that he and his brand, his team, are paving the way in the Canadian market, starting in Vancouver. There's obviously a fantastic food scene here. I think uh, these two brands, Gordon Ramsay Burger and Steak, are are absolutely you know additions or incremental. Um it, it just helps to grow, I'm gonna use another food term here, grow the pie for everyone. <laughs> um, you know, pardon the pun, but I, I, I think it's gonna be an excellent uh an excellent dimension to expand the food scene in Vancouver and add something that's that um I don't really see there currently.
6: So what can diners expect from these restaurants? Like will they be similar to his other restaurants? Will they be a little more different with a Canadian twist?
7: i don't it's a good uh, question um i don't think a canadian twist so far i will say uh chef gordon has many brands and the brands are different from each other but even in the same brand each location is a little bit different like every location of his brands is a little bit unique and does reflect the the local environment and certainly Mm. these would be no exception right so they are not carbon copies of of the location so they are going to reflect a little bit of the local vibe and flavor another food term of our locations at uh, Hard Rock Casino and River Rock Casino Resort but um, I wouldn't say Canadian flair is is uh, appropriate here right Gordon's uh, flair and aesthetic is properly British driven there's certainly uh, references to like the the Union Jack and another <laughs> you know those, those are sort of like the, the common threads in his locations uh, across the board across the world uh, this would be no exception.
6: So for people who haven't been to Ramsey Burger or Ramsey Steak, can you just paint a picture of what they look like and what they're expected to look like in Vancouver?
7: That's a that's a great question. Uh, I can't paint a picture verbally nearly as good (laughs) as the pictures that are are currently on our website. I can tell you uh, from personal experience how it feels. It is a it's a wonderful feeling. Like Gordon's presence, I have to say, is is you know without exception. When I'm in a Gordon Ramsay uh, location, I do feel his presence in the in the food and the detail. So on steak, obviously, it's a more of a high end experience and menu, and with more exquisite you know offerings. And again, the the sticky toffee pudding is a prime example. Uh, Burger, I think it still has that sheer passion for taste, for flavor, and excitement. Um, but it is a more accessible place where the guy would take my kids, right? Because you have the burgers and the milkshakes and everything's familiar, but it does have a unique twist to it that's still exciting, but not uh, surprising. If you know Gordon, you know his vibe, his character, it comes through in the food, in the environment, in the taste. And I, I think there's a lot of room for multiple brands to reflect him. And these are just two of the many sides of his personality, burger and steak.
6: Last question. Can we expect a hell's kitchen coming to canada
7: <laughs> uh i would love that to happen uh and again we, we've uh we're excited for opportunities that that can follow and this is this is a partnership this is not a a a one-off we are excited for the other opportunities that that can be in the future the the wide appeal of of chef ramsey but also of his wide knowledge of so many different Styles that there's room for plenty of brands in his portfolio, and I think in Canada.
6: I'm looking forward to rolling out of each of those restaurants after trying (laughs) everything on the menu.
7: (laughs) As am
1: I. Uh, As am I. That is our producer, Bianca Rego, speaking with Gavin Whiteley, who's the chief marketing officer for Great Canadian Entertainment. Two two Gordon Ramsay restaurants that are coming to Metro Vancouver one of them which is Gordon Ramsay Burger which will be out at the Hard Rock um, in the Coquitlam area and the other uh, Gordon Ramsay Steak which will come to the River Rock in Richmond and I know that'll be really exciting for foodies this is the first time Gordon Ramsay has come up to Canada in a big way and I'm guessing he'll show up himself for that that'll be pretty exciting big star like that coming to town and it'll really help shake up the food scene here in Vancouver too. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for us to talk a little BC Lions. Head coach Rick Campbell is with us this morning. Morning, coach.
8: Good morning. How are you?
1: I am good. Thank you. So not the outcome, obviously, that was ideal in that last game. What happened?
8: Yeah, we we got behind early. I think we were facing a motivated Winnipeg team that that came out to play fast and uh, we didn't match it early and then we got behind on the scoreboard and could never get back in it. So um, yeah, not an ideal day for us.
1: Okay. So then how do you get the team to regroup? What do you tell them?
8: Well, we got a big game. We play Calgary on Saturday at four and it's going to be another big game. Um, and they're going to be a motivated group too. So the key is to, you know, get knocked down. is not the problem. It's, it's getting back up. So we need to get back up and get back at it. And we hit the practice field tomorrow and we'll get ready to play Calgary on Saturday.
1: Okay. And so what is the situation as well with Vernon Adams jr.?
8: Yeah, we're thinking there's a good chance he could come back. Um like I said, we don't practice until tomorrow, but uh he's getting treatment and doing every doing all the right things to get back and uh um you yeah, we'll, we'll declare what's happening in the next couple of days, but I think there's a decent chance he could be playing.
1: Okay, so if we win on Saturday then against Calgary, that puts us what 8 8 points ahead.
8: Yeah, we'd be seven and two. So that would be halfway through the season. So um, it's, it's a big game and we, we would be up on them and we have the tiebreaker on them. So um, like I said, these, these games are big coming up We have Calgary Saturday and then Saskatchewan after that. So they, you know, it, they keep coming.
1: Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking that. So yeah. if it's a midpoint of the season, then coach, is that, is that the toughest time of the season to reach this point where you still have a lot of work to do?
8: Well, you you want to improve. Um, that, that's the key to it. And you know, if we can be seven and two at the halfway mark, that would be really good and and put us in good position for the second half of the season. And um, you know, the players just need to be really smart about taking care of themselves, their their bodies, and everything because we got a a long way to go. But I think everybody's feeling good around here. And uh, you know, anytime you lose, you always look forward to getting back out there and try to make it right again.
1: Okay, so then, what do you want them to focus on in practice this week?
8: Um well there's a whole list of things I'll bet. but uh I'll bet. uh yeah no I think we do, as long as we have urgency and and we're um you know we're we're striving to get better and we're hungry and all those things then good things happen for this group and um and I know our guys our guys want to get better so you know we'll get back out there tomorrow and uh, get after it
1: What does it do, though, to kind of halt the momentum a little bit, right? Because it did feel like the team was on a bit of a roll. And what do you say to them as the coach to kind of get them back in that right headspace?
8: Yeah, I think you. Um, I think it's just, sometimes it can be a little bit of a reality check. It's just a good reminder that you need to be on point and on top of your game to, to beat anyone in pro sports. So, um, you know, you can't let your guard down. So that's that's what really what we took away from him. I told him not to take a deep dive into the whole thing too much, is that we played a good team on the road. Um, you know, we split with them, and we have another game against them later in the year. That'll be big. So... You know, in the big picture, we're doing okay. But uh, we need to get back at it and get back to work.
1: That's the other thing, too, right? It's not like you just, like, one and done. You're going to play them again.
8: Yeah, so it's big. Like I said, we we did a great job of beating them the first time in Winnipeg. We had to play in Winnipeg twice. And so we get them one more time in Vancouver. And uh, that'll be a big game when, when that happens.
1: All right. Well, listen, good luck this week. Look forward to the game on Saturday.
8: Thank you. Have a good Monday.
1: You too. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Lions play Saturday. It's a home game against the Calgary Stampeders. They will be looking to bounce back after that 50-14 to 14 loss at Winnipeg. And also, as I mentioned, home game, really important to mention this, that Saturday is the BC Lions Pure Later Tackle Hunger Game. Uh, fans bringing food and cash donations that will go to the food bank will get to take a picture with the Grey Cup. So if you've ever wanted your picture taken with the Grey Cup or if you just want to do some good when you're heading to the football game bring a donation to the food bank they would greatly appreciate it it's going to be lots of fun this is mornings with Simi This weekend was a big test. Could our ferry system handle the extra travel and passengers? Because, you know, there was trouble the last couple of long weekends we had for sure. So they tried some things differently, you know, staffed up in some areas, beefed up more information. They had briefings. And... So far, so good. Now, there's a lot of travel happening today, but you know what? No complaints that we heard, which is always a good thing. So let's get the update on the BC Ferries picture of the long weekend. Joining us now is Nicholas Jimenez, the CEO and president of BC Ferries. Thank you for joining us. For
9: sure. Good morning, Simi.
1: Okay. So tell us, how has the weekend gone?
9: Well, it's, it's been very busy, as you were describing earlier, but it's been very kind of calm and orderly. There's been uh, a huge surge in uh, passenger volumes, uh, but we've seen a, a smaller number of vehicles, only by a little bit. Uh, so it tells us more people are traveling, but they're either carpooling uh, or taking transit. Uh, so we've actually seen very few uh, delays like we would have – I shouldn't say delays. I should say longer sailing waits uh, than what you might have otherwise experienced, you know, in other weekends. And the big thing, and I know you talked this in your intro – The big challenge we've had this summer in July, for example, was the fact that the coastal celebration wasn't in service. So that took out 12,000 passenger spots uh, and much needed car spaces. So that ship being back in service creates huge relief across the system.
1: Right. And there were a number of things that BC Ferries did differently in preparation for this weekend and during the weekend. Can you tell us about that?
9: Sure. Well, actually, we started these things uh, earlier in the year as well. So one of the things we were doing, obviously, was uh, to make sure that the Coastal Celebration was back in service. So that was huge. Um, we started doing a lot more communication. So we, we always do uh, radio advertising to you know, advise people what what they can expect on a busy long weekend. We doubled that budget and we did it a lot earlier so we could really try to speak to people uh, long in advance and helping people make travel plans. We did uh, something earlier in the summer to relieve pressure at Horseshoe Bay. We introduced another sailing from Tawasin to Duke Point. So this was to relieve pressure that you would get At that terminal, which, as you know, is very constrained by land, so it just can't handle a lot of volume. And then we use these pricing incentives to sort of encourage people to say, "Hey, do you need to travel Friday afternoon between two and four in the afternoon, or could you maybe look at a sailing where we have maybe more capacity because it's less popular later in the day, earlier Saturday morning?" So, you know, and then we've done a lot of obviously twice daily media briefings and uh, more traffic uh, controls at our terminal. So. A lot of things that are just built into now how we're going to run the business.
1: Yeah, that was going to ask you then. So if these things work this weekend, I guess, you got to wonder, why didn't we do them before?
9: Well, we were. I mean, I, what I've just described to you is in combination, but, but a lot of these things are things that we've iteratively put in place over the course of the summer. Now, you got to remember, this summer is like no other summer uh, that we've had. We are seeing record, record demand. And, and that shouldn't surprise us, given that you know, we were living under the cloak of COVID and travel restrictions for 21 and 22. Um, and there's more people living in the region. Uh, so more people wanting to go away. We had fires in the interior. Maybe that drew more people to the coast. So there's just a lot of pressure on these systems. The other thing I'll say, Simeon, people don't realize this, we're we're, we're peak. Uh, we have every single asset in the the system being used. Like, I don't have an extra boat that I can pull out, you know, when it gets busy, every single boat and vessel we have is being used. So that's, that's a challenge of our system is that we actually have a peak demand or peak capacity.
1: Right. So you you also mentioned that, you know, a lot more actual passengers, fewer cars, fewer vehicles, more passengers. Is that the way of the future then for BC Ferries? Like, is it going to orient itself towards more foot passengers?
9: Well, I mean, I think we're going to always encourage people to travel uh, smartly. Uh, And so, you know, coming on your own, if you have an opportunity to do something different, and I recognize public transit isn't always uh, possible for people, especially when you're going camping and you're not sort of staying in the city where you're arriving. Um, But certainly looking at carpooling and finding people to pick up on the other side. So I think those are smart travel tips, quite frankly, that we would always use, you know, last year, this year, next year. Um, Like I said, the system has a certain limit, and the other thing people don't realize is, you know, the vessels operate at a license, and so we can only take so many people. So whether you've got 1,000 cars, 300 cars, 100 cars, it's really about the number of people on board. Uh, that you reach a capacity. Transport Canada says you can only operate with this many crew for this many people. So that's the number that we really pay close attention to and we have to manage.
1: Okay, so what what has BC Ferries then learned from this weekend? Well, I would say,
9: really, I would probably of broaden it to the summer. We've learned that the system has its limits and we have to be uh, creative uh, in both thinking about how we organize the system, so where we are planning sailings, how we organize our pricing and pricing incentives, and then the communication piece. That's key. Absolutely key.
1: Is expanding capacity then a priority moving forward?
9: Well, it's certainly something that's in our capital plan. So there's there's two things that we have. Uh, you know, One, we have to look at what does the system need over time? And then two, what are the vessels that we need uh, over time? Uh, and right now, I can tell you, Uh, And you probably already know this, but many of our vessels are approaching end of life Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to replace those. Now, that's not an overnight job. We've got business cases going to our board and our regulator to begin that work, which is great. It's going to take years, you know, and and billions of dollars to kind of see that program play itself out. Um, And so we've got to ask two questions. What kind of vessels do we need? And how many vessels do we need? So we're, we're, we're doing that work right now with our board and with government to sort of plan for not what's the ferry system look like in one year or two years, even five years, but what's the system look like in 20 years? Because that will inform the investments we need to make now.
1: So all the things that were done this weekend, right, all the ships in service, crew on standby, all of that, can that be repeated in the future? Can it happen for other long, busy long weekends? Yeah.
9: Absolutely. I mean, this is how, again, the the and I come back to this, the, the big challenge we've had in July was the absence of the coastal celebration. And you can see what happens when one vessel is out of service for any period of time. It really complicates the system, uh, especially when the system needs it the most. So yes, those assets are fully deployed, but we would have had, that would have been true whether we'd done the planning or not. So we, we always plan to have all of our ships in service between June and September. We do all of our big maintenance between September and May. Uh, that's just how we plan. Uh, so I would say, yes, the system can run this way. Now, the other thing, I mean, you know this well, that, you know, you can't. I can't promise anybody that we're not going to have a problem on any given day because I don't know when a pump is going to fail or whether a propeller is going to hit a log or whether, you know, a customer is going to get sick and it's going to involve delays because of medical attention. These are just things that happen when you're moving Twenty-one and a half million people a year. So we we are organized to respond quickly, and, you know, and we'll keep doing that. But we can't promise people that nothing will ever go wrong in the future.
1: Right. It's it's about the communication, though, isn't Absolutely. it? Because like that, having the briefings, all of that, that was that was helpful. Because I think a lot of times it's just that people want to know what's going on. I agree,
9: and you know, that's one of the things. Certainly, in my first couple of months here as CEO, uh, I've recognized how important not just the communication is, but also like, you know, media outlets like yourselves. A lot of people, you know, they might look at our website, but uh, they're also listening to the radio, watching TV, following, you know, feeds from from other media outlets. So, we have to make sure that we are, you know, not we are putting out proactive information, but descriptive and helpful information as well. And so, we'll keep doing that.
1: Okay. And the website, what's the latest on that? That's definitely going to get an upgrade? I know there were some tweaks done to it too.
9: Well, yeah. So, what we were doing, uh, and we actually did this Earlier in the year, so if you recall in May, we ran into a problem when our data center had this unexpected surge, uh, and it created uh, an outage. So we added more capacity and storage to handle that. We've introduced more monitoring, both the automated kind and then the the human kinds. We've got people monitoring the system, obviously, all day long. And then we introduced a waiting room. So this is in the event that there's a surge of demand. Everybody wants to go on to Reservations and, and and do something. The system isn't built for you know eighty thousand people in twenty minutes. So we created a waiting room, much like you'd see if you were trying to book a campsite on Parks Canada or BC Parks. And so those are features that we now have in place to kind of manage those one-off surge in demands.
1: All right. Well, we'll see what happens today, but so far so good. I'll knock wood on that. Uh, Nicholas, thank you thank for you your very time. Much.
9: Okay, thanks, Simi. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Nicholas Jimenez, who's the president and CEO of BC Ferries, talking about the things that they put in place for this long weekend that seem to be working more passengers, fewer vehicles, uh, and how that's going to impact the system moving forward. If you want to weigh in, Simi, at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a question for you. How often do you tap? It's so easy, right? Just take out your debit or credit card, tap to pay, you are on your way. But is that the problem? Is it too easy? When you pay cash, you're really connected to how much money you're spending. I mean, it's right there in front of you, you can see it. But with tapping, Question becomes, are we losing touch with our spending? Well, Dr. Preet Banerjee is a columnist for the Global Newspaper and a behavioral finance researcher and joins us now. Thanks for being here.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Do you think this disconnects us from our, our budgets and, and how much, we, how much money we, we think we're spending?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, this, this research in this field has been going on for decades. And there is a real association with the mode of payment, whether paying cash, check, if people still do that, credit card or debit, has an impact on how much money we spend. And it goes down to the two basic components of a transaction. There's the pleasure, which is the receipt of the good or the service that you're paying for. That feels great, and we love that, and we want to do more of that. And then there's the pain, which is money leaving us. And the more painful a transaction is, It serves as a consumption regulator and we lose a bit of that function when we use payments that are too convenient.
1: Hmm. Okay. So, does that mean that we're increasing our debt levels?
0: Well, what it means is that we can be a little bit more out of touch with our spending in general. So, there's a lot of things out there going on that impacts our overall debt levels. This is just another thing that maybe lets, you know, some houses get a little bit more out of touch with how with how much they're spending, which has follow on effects in terms of increasing stress levels. So I wouldn't say it's the only thing, but it's certainly another thing that compounds the
1: problem. And I understand like there's been work done on this, right? There's been some UK studies that have been done on this to like a very simple question. Ask people, do you remember how much you spent for something?
0: Yeah, that's right. They stood outside a store and as people walked out, they asked them, hey, before you look at your receipt again, give it to us and now tell us what do you think you spent on what you just bought in that store. And people who paid with cash had the highest recall. They were able to remember, you know know exactly what they spent. But as you move towards card payments and contactless payments, their ability to recall how much they spent was worse. And then what they also did, it was a second study where they took a bunch of people and randomly assigned them into different payment methods before their next shopping trip. And again, what they found was people who were told, you know, just use contactless payment had the biggest problems recalling how much they spent.
1: So what does this tell us about our, our spending habits? Are we just all about the convenience? Well, yeah,
0: I mean, we are always seeking more convenience. And I think, you know, you want to fight fire with fire if making payments more convenient, which is what technology and innovation does, if that is too convenient, then maybe what we want to do to help combat that is try to make our paying more inconvenient. So if you think back to, again, people don't really use checks, but it's a great example, using a check, you had to sit down and write out the number twice. First in numbers, and then you had to write out the actual amount in letters.
3: And it took a long time. Dr. Banerjee, there's people
1: right now who have no idea what you're talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're like, check? What is that? (laughs) Yeah, so what you want to do is you want to increase the pain of your payment. So there's a couple ways of doing that. One is using cash um, because you feel the money leaving you right at the time of the transaction. So that serves that pain serves as a regulator. But for those who don't use cash and are going to still use cards, which includes me, there are other things we can use, like technology to set up spending alerts or transaction alerts that tells you every time you make a payment, you get a little pop-up that said, hey, you just spent $8.96 on those two donuts or whatever it is. That is going to serve as a little bit of pain that can hopefully serve that, that function of being a, a regulator of our consumption.
1: Right. But people don't, maybe people don't want to know. Isn't that the problem? Like you mentioned checks. Remember when you had to balance your checkbook so you always knew exactly because it was so hard to go to the bank and they were only open Monday to Friday, nine to five, that kind of thing. And so we had to be more hyper aware. Now we just assume the information is always there. We don't actually check it.
0: Yeah, and so we're very disconnected, uh, from our spending because of this, this technological advances that makes things more convenient. And you know, by extension, if you think about people with smartwatches and they connect that to their smartphones, which are connected to their credit card accounts, when you contort your wrist to touch that payment terminal, you might be contorting your wrist in a way such that you even block the screen so you don't even see what that amount is. And a lot of people, there's, you know, payment anxiety. You get to a terminal and you just want that transaction to be over as fast as you can. And so you are even less connected to that spending total that you're, that you're wow. you know, the things that you're buying.
1: So let's say we have that. Let's say we have that people recognize that spending anxiety that they feel. What does that tell us? What do we need to do to avoid that?
0: Well, I think you know this is really a case of if you you know are budgeting. This probably isn't a big deal for you because at the end of every month you're sitting down and reconciling things. But for the people who may not be taking their cash flow more seriously, this might be a bit of a wake up call. And maybe you just need some simple things that you can implement in your daily behavior to help bring you a little bit more in control. So, of course, the best thing would be to sit down and plan out your your finances. But we know not everyone does that. But knowing that, hey, I know that if I make the way I pay for things more inconvenient, it's going to help me be more in touch with my spending. It's one small step. So just by, you know, if people were to switch to using cash, which isn't always feasible, it's not going to fix anyone's, everyone's problems. But it is one small step to understand the psychology behind paying for things that might help us become more in touch. And maybe it's that first step on a long
5: journey.
1: And I know a lot of people, like, with your bank account, online banking, they will, as you mentioned, they'll give you the notifications, right? They'll let you know. You can set it up to tell you all sorts of stuff, but I guess we just have to do a little investigating on that.
0: Yeah, and it's relatively easy. You know, I just set up a new credit card with a new bank, and I have it attached to my smartphone, and I you know, use my mobile phone to make most of my payments these days when I'm out and about. And I get two notifications because I kind of, screwed up. I set up two payment notifications, one with the credit card and one with my phone. So every time I make a transaction now, I get two alerts that are spaced about a minute apart. And it's annoying, but it makes me a little bit more in touch with how much I'm spending. Because if I didn't have those alerts, I probably could not tell you at all what I was spending on any individual transaction.
1: It is so insidious, isn't it? Like you go tap a couple times a day and you've probably spent like almost a hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to add, you know, when it comes to, you know, you can link a debit card or a credit card or pay with contactless with either. Credit cards actually do lead people to spend a lot more money because, you know, as we talked about the pain of the payment, with a credit card, the pain, if you think about it, doesn't happen until 30 days later. Right. And not only that, that transaction is lost in a sea of, you know, 50 other transactions that you might have made during the month. So its identity is lost as well. So connecting that pain with the pleasure of whatever it is you're buying, you know, 20, 30 days before is even more disconnected. So if you use a credit card, that definitely is going to lead a lot of people to spend a lot more because the pain is very small with credit cards because it's something we'll deal with later the problem is later comes and we find out that we've spent a lot of money. Yeah.
1: Make it hurt. That's good advice. Dr. Banerjee, thanks for your time.
3: <laughs> You're very welcome.